0: Our brains did not evolve all at once and, and this again your audience will know that our brains have evolved in pieces and some of them are more closely connected than others and habits are part of a neural circuitry that picks up certain types of learning <laughs>
1: Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride right along with a former Navy SEAL physician, embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation. Science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route.
2: All right, welcome back. It's no mystery to most of you listening that poor health behaviors such as smoking, substance abuse, poor nutrition, lack of exercise, and patient noncompliance account for a substantial portion of the disease burden, not to mention costs, in the U.S., Some recent estimates by the CDC and other researchers suggest behaviors account for 40 to 50 percent of the increased risk associated with deaths prior to the age of 75. The problems are clear. What to do about them isn't. There's no willpower medication to prescribe, and most public health efforts thus far have barely made a dent. But what if old-fashioned willpower really isn't the issue? What if something researchers call introspection illusion is causing us to overestimate our own willpower and underestimate the capacities of others? Today's guest is psychologist and behavioral scientist, Wendy Wood. She is currently a professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California and a visiting professor at the INSEAD Business School in Paris. Wendy has spent much of her career studying what she considers the very building blocks of behavioral change, something we all know as habits. Angela Duckworth describes her as, quote, the world's foremost expert in the field, unquote. And according to Adam Grant, she is, quote, widely recognized as the authority on the science of habits, unquote. We'll explore her research and her recently published book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. Our conversation also touches on what's commonly called the replication and reproducibility crisis. Wendy actually has a unique lens on this issue, having served as one of 15 distinguished scientists chosen by the American Academy of Sciences to study and present on the problem. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, and it was a lot of fun. So with that said, let's get started. Wendy, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you today. Oh, thank you for for
0: inviting me. This will be fun. It really will.
2: Well, I've just finished your book this week, and it just came out um, just a few months ago, I believe. This is Good Habits, Bad Habits. You know, this is the time of the year. This is January, what, 15th, so most people are probably already done with their New Year's resolutions if they even started them. But this is a good time of the year to start thinking about these things. And to begin with, there's so much to talk about, Wendy, but you have been spending a lot of time on this particular subject in your career just give us a quick idea how you got into this. What, what drove your interest in habits and habitual thinking? So
0: I agree with you that January is a time when most people think about their New Year's resolutions. It's also a good time to understand why we should forgive ourselves for maybe not meeting them quite in the way we hoped we would.
2: Or not even starting so- them, right?
0: And sometimes not even starting them, yes. So I am a research psychologist. I'm a behavioral scientist. And I started my career interested in attitude change, how people change their attitudes and beliefs. And it became clear pretty early on that we know How people do this. We know a lot about how people change their attitudes and beliefs. The challenge is that changes in what we think we should be doing don't always translate into behavior. And that's what we're up against with New Year's resolutions, right? We make a decision to do something, we know what we should be doing for our health, for well being, for our family and we resolve this year we're going to do it and then we start most of us do start for a short amount of time but it's very hard to maintain and that's what I am fascinated with is why is it that we have such a hard time persisting when we know all of our commitment and our beliefs and our willpower are behind it wanting to change but yet we have a hard time doing so. And that's when I started to study habits because habits are how people naturally persist. They're a part of our brain that allows us to repeat behaviors automatically without thinking about them.
2: So, Wendy, let's talk about that for a moment. How much of our daily normal activities are actually governed by really background habitual thinking versus things that we actually consciously think about.
0: Yeah, this is a wonderful audience to talk with because you do understand that all of your conscious experience is only part of what's going on in your brain, in your body, in all of the um, the physiological systems that keep us going. And Habits are a part of our brain that is connected to, but somewhat separate from our conscious understanding, our conscious awareness of who we are. So we have experiences that we recognize, we we, we, um, we feel things, we decide things, we know things. But then there's all of the non-conscious processes that are also guiding our behavior that we don't have access to, that are only somewhat linked, somewhat integrated with the parts of ourselves that we do know. And, and the reasons for this is that um, our brains did not evolve all at once. And, and this, again, your audience will know that... Our brains have evolved in pieces, and some of them are more closely connected than others. And habits are part of a neural circuitry that picks up certain types of learning. It picks up when we repeat an action over and over in a certain context, meaning maybe a time of day or a certain location or when you're with someone and then you get a reward. What happens, to to, to oversimplify a bit, what happens then is that your brain releases dopamine, and dopamine does many things, but one of the things it does is it ties together what's currently in memory. It ties all of those context features with what you did in order to get that reward. So I stand in front of my coffee maker in the morning and I just repeat what I did before to make coffee. I don't have to ask myself, so do I want coffee this morning? If I do, how would I do it? None of that is necessary. I've done it so often in the past that the actions of making coffee just automatically come to mind. And so I can just do it almost seamlessly while I'm talking to my husband, while I'm listening to the news, checking social media. This is the beauty of habit, is it allows us to repeat what we've done before that got us rewards.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting example because, uh, as I understand it, coffee actually takes about 20 minutes for the caffeine to go into your system for you to, to realize those effects. So when you take that first sip of coffee, it's really a dopamine hit, isn't it?
0: it It's a dopamine hit that matters when you are forming your um, habit. Dopamine becomes less important for perpetuating, for persisting with a habit over time, because that dopamine response is one that occurs when something unusually good happens. So it's something out of the ordinary. That's when you get the dopamine release. I see. When it's just sort of the normal thing, we kind of habituate to the things that are going on around us. And that habit memory sticks, but we're not learning anymore. And and for those listeners who know a lot about this, area, they'll recognize that I'm talking about a reward prediction error, Mm -hmm. which is how we learn, right? We're we're getting more of a reward than we got in the past. And that is how we learn new behaviors. But once the habit is formed, the reward is not all that important. It's that mental association, that reflects past rewards that keeps Mm -hmm. us doing the behavior. And that's what gets us into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Because what worked in the past is not always what works now. And when we're making our New Year's resolutions, and we're deciding we're going to do something different, we're looking for some new reward. But that old Mental association keeps popping into mind, and it's that association that keeps us repeating
1: old behaviors, even when we want to do something new. Interesting. So, so if I understand, it's not the like the dopamine response from the coffee that that makes you sort of crave coffee. You wake up and and suddenly you know you have to get the coffee. It's the the completion of the habit. So you, you have done that so often that the body just says, Hey, you're not making the coffee, what's wrong? And that's why the craving comes. Is that am I interpreting that correctly?
0: Yes, if you don't make coffee, right. your body responds. Absolutely. But what initiates the behavior is really the mental association, is that making coffee comes to mind right so one of my favorite examples of this is most of us have pretty good patterns in the morning pretty standard patterns you know we get up we do things Um, we eat breakfast most of us eat the same thing for breakfast every day or mostly the same thing Um, or we don't eat breakfast at all some of us just have coffee, (laughs) some don't do anything, (laughs) whatever we do, it tends to be the same thing, regardless of how much we ate the night before.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So we could get up in the morning, still feeling kind of stuffed from really overdoing it the night before. And we eat breakfast, the same breakfast we eat every morning, we could get up, be really starving because we missed dinner the night before and we're likely to eat the same breakfast every morning because that breakfast is based on our breakfast habit is based on what we've learned in the past it's not necessarily what we want to do right now and that's the trick with habits
2: so let's talk a little bit about you know the time to change and and the variables that can make this successful. So ever since the Harvard geneticist, David Sinclair, came on our show last year, um, talked about uh, longevity medicine. I've been doing intermittent fasting, so I'm one of those ones who skips breakfast right now. Ah. But Wendy, it took a while, right? So um, according to my wife, I was a little irritable, especially at first. So there there was a lot of friction here keeping me from doing this. But tell us what you've learned in your research about different kinds of habit formation, because some are easier than others. I mean, if you just want to start drinking coffee, that's pretty easy. Stopping might be a little more difficult, but what are the variables that lead to success in this, and how much time does it take?
0: Um, because of this um, tendency for habits to just pop into mind whenever you're in the same context, and in fact, there are some scientists who believe that we never unlearn habit memories Habit memories are stored so securely that we can't ever change them. So you might still have a breakfast habit lurking in there somewhere, ready to be reactivated at the right (laughs) point in time.
2: Yeah, I came back on vacation. You're right.
0: Well, it's easy to fall back into old habits, and that's why. We learn habits slowly. They change slowly. So... What habit science has focused on as a mechanism of change is changing the context in which you typically do the behavior. And I don't know how you managed to change your eating habits in this way. Um, It sounds like it would be painful, but you sound like someone with a lot of self-control, so good for you.
2: Well, after reading your book, I don't know if I believe in my self-control anymore. I don't know. We we'll have to get to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you may have had some some tricks to changing context as well. So, if I don't go and stand in front of my coffee maker, I'm not going to be thinking about coffee in quite the same way. It's not going to remind me that I typically make coffee, and I might have to actually ask myself. Do I want coffee this morning? Because I have disrupted the cues that activate me making coffee in the morning.
2: Yeah, I guess to answer your question, for a long time I would skip lunch, and I just did that because I've been in medical device world forever, many long days sitting in the OR. I mean, you know, if you're watching – you know, a surgery, you don't usually get hungry thinking about that. So, and you're busy. So for me, it was more about, um, you know, just switching things around and I wanted to bracket one of the meal drops either before or after sleep. You know, it's the easiest thing because it's easy not to eat when you're sleeping, at least for most people. So, um, it was just flipping it around basically. Instead of skipping lunch, I'm skipping breakfast. And then I just slowly pushed it back to see how long I could do it. Um, so that's, that's, that was my strategy, but, Clearly, this is a hard thing to do, and it's not the best idea for most people. Um, So, uh, you know, I guess that's what we're looking at is, you know, especially a lot of the physicians listening right now. I mean, every single one of them has said at some point, if I could just get my patients to do blah, 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 this would be so much easier. Or I wouldn't have to do this, this, and this. And it's hard to have influence on someone's behavior. Well, anyway, it's hard, but especially when you're not with them all the time. So... Let's talk about something that um, maybe maybe driving a little more towards towards medicine here. You did talk about uh, medication adherence, mm-hmm. and let me make sure I'm reading this right. So this is uh, page one three three. Patient beliefs had no impact on um, medication compliance, which that's interesting because we talk we talked a lot about this on the show, uh, you know, patient education and just getting them to understand what's important and why this is important to them. But that may not really be enough, enough, is it, Wendy? Um, tell us what you learned there in that study.
0: Yes. So we all think that we should be educating people and education is great. Um, about, but but we think we should be educating people about what they should be doing for their health. And in that particular study, um, these were meds, hypertension meds, that people are not taking because they feel bad. Instead, they're taking it on a regular basis in order to deal with a chronic condition. So there's not like any cue to follow. I'm feeling bad, I should take my. Med. Instead, people have to rely on decision making or habit. And what we found in that study is that even people who believed in the efficacy that these meds are going to help them, they weren't successful at taking them on a regular basis. The people who were most successful at taking the meds regularly when they were supposed to were ones who had set up a structure in their environment to take them. So they took them at a certain time of day. You can imagine they put them next to their toothbrush or they put them on their nightstand. So they were taking them when they were doing something already in their routine. And that shows, I think, part of the power of habits over our conscious decision-making selves. Because consciousness is, I mean, it's wonderful, it's creative, it's thoughtful, it allows us to to create the societies that we live in. But it's very flexible. And we tend to forget. We get distracted. We change our goals. We are ruminating about something that just happened to us. So we forget Mm -hmm. to do things like take our meds. And there were two wonderful um policy health interventions that i think are worth considering in this context and one is the five a day i don't know if you remember the five five a day
2: i did about to read not, your book the, the vegetables servings ah, of vegetables, right? yes
0: yeah. um in the 1990s the um The National Cancer Institute, (coughs) excuse me, um, connected with the um, American Produce Association and put together a campaign to inform people that they should be eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Before that, people didn't know. Only 8% of Americans knew they should be eating five servings a day, which I find Amazing to believe, but that was yeah. true. After the campaign started, and the campaign was mostly, it was informational. They put stickers on fruits and vegetables. They put signs in grocery stores. They were ads. Um, it was mostly a knowledge-based campaign. So four years after the campaign started, over a third of us knew we should be eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So it was a tremendous success in terms of changing our understanding of our health. The problem was it had no effect on behavior. And in fact, since that campaign, consumption of fruit and vegetables has gone down in the U.S. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, which is dreadful. So part of the problem, part of what they didn't realize is that eating is a very habitual thing, and we can think and decide and know all kinds of things about what's good for us. Applying it in our behavior to actually change our habits is something very different. Well,
2: let's just jump back to the medications for a moment here, because-
0: this okay. is a
2: critically important issue in, in in healthcare right now, especially in our country. Just getting even, you know, dialing this up a few percentage points would be, you know, a big deal for people with chronic health problems. So, sure. what, what? Just say say something like, um, you know, statins or hypertension medicine. I mean, how long does it take to establish a new habit like this? And was there something more effective than something else, like? putting it next to the toothbrush rather than having an app on your phone that reminds you or putting it next to the coffee maker. I mean, if we drill down what, what, what was most beneficial just from this study?
0: All the study told us is that time of day made a big difference. If you are taking meds at the same time of day, then you are much more likely to reliably take them. Now, I'm actually doing some research um, on this myself right now um, with folks at Brigham Hospital at Harvard uh, to try to understand exactly how to create these sorts of medication compliance habits. Mm-hmm. And, and this is an area we need to know more about But I think that the whole, I think it would be a mistake, let me push back a bit on you, I think it would be a mistake to focus just on medication adherence because our major health complaints today, our major health challenges are broader lifestyle changes. They don't start with our failure to take medication. They start with the way we live our lives and our inability to change exercise, eating, sleeping, stress habits. The one public Policy intervention that was successful at changing these larger habits, we all know, was smoking. And it didn't rely on knowledge, it didn't rely on educating people. In fact, rates of smoking in the U.S. were pretty stable even after we learned through the Surgeon General's report and through. There was a great article in Reader's Digest, which everyone read, called Cancer by the Carton, um, back in the 60s. We learned that smoking caused cancer, but we didn't change our behavior until, until the government started to actually make it more difficult. So that's the second way we change our habits we talked about changing cues changing the cues that activate the habits automatically that so it gives you sort of a window of opportunity to try something new to make decisions the second way that research has shown that we can change existing habits is by putting some friction on them and the government did this in several ways One is it levied taxes on cigarettes, so they're just much more expensive now. Another is they banned smoking in public places, making it more difficult for people to smoke. It's hard to imagine, but there used to be a couple of aisles in the back of airplanes where you could smoke. There was a smoking section in airplanes. But oh, no there longer. used to be
2: ashtrays in all the, uh, the cup holders for quite some time, too. Exactly.
0: Right. Yes. You really know you're and, on a roll
2: plane, too, if you sit, see one of those today. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, one that hasn't been retrofitted. Um, and we took cigarettes off of store, store shelves so that you actually have to go up to a counter and ask someone if you want to purchase cigarettes. And we took ads off the air. All of those things added friction to smoking and reduced the rates down to the point where now only about 15% of Americans smoke. That is an amazing health success.
2: It is, and you it, know, to get to your point, I think you're getting at too. I mean, it's almost like a package of behaviors, right, that lead to um, adherence to any number of things, including medications. But surprisingly, and I, I couldn't believe this when I read this in your book. There's still states, and I think Mississippi is one of them where it's still like 25 percent of the population. Am I right about that, Wendy? That still yes. smokes. So, yes, that, that obviously is a you know almost like a little laboratory there for what not mm-hmm. to do. It, it would seem you know if we guessed, uh, you know, people live in Colorado; they're outdoorsy, they go skiing. My sister lives out there. Um, there's other states where people aren't as active, but maybe the taxes aren't as high. Maybe you're still allowed to smoke in a bar. I don't know. But um, clearly, these benefits didn't reach everybody. And we can kind of see, kind of isolate those variables um, based on what was done in each state, right?
0: Exactly. The U.S. is a hodgepodge of different regulations, which is really challenging in some ways. But it's great in others because it lets us do these sort of... Um, quasi-experiments to figure out, okay, in this locale, smoking is allowed in public places, and there are no taxes, almost no taxes on smoking. And um, there are still cigarette machines in bars. So you can then see what effect that has on the smoking rates. Yes, they're very interesting quasi-experiments. But the point I was trying to get to.
2: Yeah, sorry, it got you off track.
0: Yeah, is that no, no, that was it. it. It's something really interesting about the U.S. Anyhow, um, the point I was trying to get to is that friction is something that we don't think is going to be very important in controlling our behavior, because we all. We're aware of our conscious selves. We're aware of the decisions we make, of our commitments, our desires, our goals, plans. We don't think a whole lot about the environment that we're in and the friction it places on our behavior. So, one of the challenges that your healthcare providers have is not just talking with patients and clients about. What would be healthy for them, but also convincing them that the environment around them has a great deal to do with how successful they're going to be in medication adherence, in exercise, in eating a healthy diet. One of my favorite studies was done with cell phones. We all know that our cell phones are being tracked for many reasons.
2: you actually caused um, me to go look at mine right now just by saying that. <laughs> I know. Well,
0: we should be a little paranoid, I think. Um, a data analytics company tracked hundreds of thousands of cell phones for a couple of months to see how far people traveled to a paid fitness center, meaning a gym. And what they found is that if cell phones, and of course the people holding them, traveled three and a half miles, they went five times a month. If the phones and the people holding them had to travel a little over five miles, they only went once a month. So what this tells you is that distance is an important kind of friction. If you have to work harder to do something, You're just much less likely to do it, and you're less likely to repeat it into a habit. So in recommending to people about increasing their fitness, finding some way to make it easy. Join a gym close to home. Find one that's close to your office. Find some way of integrating it into your schedule so that there's not much friction. It doesn't get in the way of your decision to work out. That's really the key to forming healthy habits is reducing the friction or the difficulty that you have in performing the behavior. And there's all kinds of wonderful other studies for for people who want experiments, You're letting me go on and on here. No, go ahead, Wendy. I could, I could go on and on about. So for people who want um, randomized control trials, <laughs> there have been studies where you have two bowls of food in front of you. One is a bowl of apple slices, which we all know is healthy for you. One is a bowl of heavily buttered popcorn, not so healthy. If for some people in the study... Apple slices were right in front of them. The bowl of popcorn was further away, so they had to reach for it. They could still see it, and they knew it was there, and they were allowed to eat it, but they had to reach. For other participants in the study, it was the reverse. The popcorn was right in front of them, and the apple slices they had to reach. People ate a third less calories if the apple slices were right in front of them than if the popcorn was right in front of them. What that shows again is that friction matters. The simple friction of having to reach for something was enough to reduce by a third how many calories people ate. So friction is amazingly powerful in what behaviors we repeat, and what habits we form. So if you think about the environment... just to
2: interrupt you for a second, this wasn't a group of undergraduates who were getting a free pizza at the end, and that's what they were waiting for, was it? (laughs) I'm sorry, Wendy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, this was all the food they got. They got apple slices or popcorn, and they were allowed to eat as much as they wanted of... Either, both, whatever. Um, but the interesting thing was just the effect of location on how much they ate.
1: Well, we've, um, we've had, um, had third-party uh, insurance companies who've tried all sorts of incentive plans, but also uh, reducing pricing for exercises, having um, guides who find you a gym so that there's someplace closer to home. To your knowledge, has that had any effect on the uh, use of gems? Uh, have you been able to look at that? Because that sounds like the, the type of reduction in friction you're talking about to, to reinforce a positive habit.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that's really, that's the third piece that's important here, and that's rewards. Mm-hmm. So we form habits when we repeat actions that give us some reward. But from what we know, and and as I explained, it has to do with dopamine, blah, blah, blah. What we know about dopamine is, it has a very short time scale for tying together all that information in memory. So the reward has to be immediate. If you have insurance companies, and and my insurance company does this, it gives me a, a, a reduction in my rate. If I don't smoke, if I go to a gym, that's too far removed from the behavior to have any influence on my behavior (laughs) or anybody else's. There's not much good data that that's powerful. Having somebody help you find a gym close to home reduces friction, so that might help. But the kinds of rewards that help to form habits are the ones that occur immediately with a behavior. And by reward, all I mean is something that makes you feel good. So it could be just feeling pride in what you're doing. If. Going to the gym makes you feel proud and strong and like you're doing something good for yourself and your family. And you have that experience every time you go to the gym. Then you're likely to form a habit. If you get a rebate in a couple months for going to the gym
2: yeah.
0: from your insurance, nah, not so likely to have much impact.
2: Right. Interesting.
0: So one of the implications is that you really kind of need to like what you're doing in order to form habits. And and back to New Year's resolutions. There was a great study done by um, a colleague of mine, Eilet Fischbach, showing that when you have people list their New Year's resolutions, she had them list their New Year's resolutions, and then indicate which ones are most likely to change their life, to be really important in changing, um, creating something wonderful. And then she also had them rate which ones were more enjoyable. So three months after they had formed these resolutions, which ones do you think they stuck with? It's not a trick question. The ones they found fun, the ones they found enjoyable. Even though we think that we make New Year's resolutions to change our lives, we're not going to be very successful at doing that, at repeating those behaviors, unless we're getting some enjoyment in the moment. So for forming new habits, the two things we know from research are you need to enjoy what you're doing, or else you're not going to repeat it very often. And it has to be easy, low friction. Or again, you're not going to repeat it very often. Those are sort of two basic takeaways to share with patients and clients who are trying to live healthier lifestyles or even trying to just... um, uh, adhere to their medication prescriptions.
2: Interesting. What you kind of gone down, went down this path a little bit. I want to ask this question. This is this is more for our listeners themselves. Um, if we're talking about a long-term complex project, so that could be anything from writing a book to putting together a proposal for the hospital board, to even learning a new language or an instrument in adulthood. You know, these are the types of things, and everybody listening can think of their own examples, but. These are the types of things that one take a long time but it's the end result isn't always clear what it's going to look like and the worthiness of the goal isn't always clear either If it's even worth <laughs> doing this right so i'll give my personal example here wendy i've been trying meditation for a while now I mean, we even had a neurosurgeon who's a an ordained buddhist priest right over here at duke university come on our show and talk about meditation we've really you know examined this quite a bit and i'm sold on the idea that it's beneficial but you don't see the results immediately. And sometimes it's really irritating to do. You don't really enjoy it. <laughs> and so I keep breaking the habit. And not everybody is even sold on this. I mean, I noticed, uh, uh, so I've been using a, an app by uh, Sam Harris, the neuroscientist, uh, to try to get me into doing this every day. And it's funny, uh, Adam Grant, one of your colleagues, who wrote a really nice blurb here on your book. He was on Sam Harris's program. And he, he got frustrated with Sam. He says, why do you keep trying to sell me on meditation? I don't want to do it. I've tried it, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of I, related to Adam there. I was like, well, you know, maybe he's right. I don't know. But what what am I doing wrong here, Wendy? There, I think, I'm, let's just say there are real benefits to this. Let's just agree to that for the moment. It's it's a worth, worthy goal, but it, God, it takes a long time. And I still haven't seen some of the real benefits that I've, I've heard from other people. Um, how should I think about this a little more intelligently, thoughtfully?
0: I... Completely empathize with your challenge here. <laughs> I um, I, I can give you two examples, and one is my own attempts to meditate. I am convinced by the science. I think Adam needs to read the science a bit more.
2: I think so too. <laughs> He's such a busy guy, though. I don't think he even takes a, a moment to breathe sometimes.
0: Oh, I know, I know. Um, I, I have a friend who studies longevity and telomeres and all yeah yes. um, and I follow her work, and I am totally convinced that we should all be meditating. I have not found a way to get myself to do it on a regular basis. I find it boring. Um, I find it See
2: Keith, it's not just me, see. <laughs>
0: I find that it takes an awful lot of effort but I also know that it that that challenge is because I have not structured it into my day in a way to make it easy so I haven't found a time yet in my day and so talk to me in six months I'm determined I'm going to. Um, Find a town in my day when I can take 10 minutes out and just sit and meditate. I've started doing it early in the morning after talking <laughs> with somebody about this challenge. Um, and he suggested he, that he found it easiest early in the morning before he started to get really wrapped up for everything we're all doing. Um, and I do find that that's helpful. I, I've been using an app, Headspace. Which yeah. I think is just charming I love the animation <laughs> so so that makes it more rewarding um, and I'm hopeful that if I keep working at it it's going to become that sort of habitual second nature but it has to be rewarding and it has to be low friction so I think I've got the low friction down and I keep trying to focus on how fun the animation is in the, <laughs> the head space so that it becomes a bit more of a reward.
2: Well, they're focused so, on you too. I'm sure they're watching everything you're doing and trying to tweak that product. So uh, it, well, they've not, done that's a not while. an accident they're trying that.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. I know, they, they've done a wonderful job actually of incorporating some habit insights into um, into their product, which is why I started to use
1: it. Well, well sir, but- circling back a little bit on our medical aspect and particularly the medication, but any type of thing that your doctor wants you to do, do you think that we would be well served as practitioners to come up with uh, clever ways and kits and tools to, to create, uh, if not a pleasant experience, at least an easy experience to try to develop, you know, Put our medicines in a in a uh, friendly little card that you open up and said it's time to take your medicine or something like that to give people uh, a little bit of a positive thing and try to turn that into into a, a worthwhile habit. Would that work? Is that where we should put our our some of our efforts? Yes,
0: I, I absolutely I think okay. so. I think there. Are, I mean, why don't we have medication bottles that? play happy tunes when oh, you open it. them.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> instead there's... we have them that drive you crazy because you can't open them. I'm, I mean, exactly, my, uh, and you... my wife has stopped taking one of her medicines because she can never get it open if I'm not around to help her with it. So. And your wife's yeah. like a doctor. <laughs> That's right, yeah, so.
0: Yeah, so there's so many things that we could be doing if we understood the psychology behind habit formation and habit change, and they wouldn't be educating people. Education is really important, but it's not going to change people's habits, and it's not typically, for most of us, going to help us form healthier habits. So understanding the mechanics of habit formation and change is really what we need to be doing. And there are it's it's interesting because our economy, tech companies in particular, so understand this. Amazon made huge amounts of money out of their one-click shopping.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
0: true. All they had to do was reduce the friction slightly. Right. You make pages load faster on your computer. And As a retailer, you are much more successful. There's great data on this. The the companies that have designed our cell phones, they understand how to form habits. We're all totally addicted. But yet medical science has not incorporated these same insights into our healthcare system. And, And it's surprising to me
1: yeah, well, we we've resisted. Um, all doctors hate it when um, people think of our patients. I did it right there as clients or consumers. So we've resisted the sense that we should do anything to to um, let uh, to to make the experience better because or more comfortable because the patient needs us, this is medicine, we're, we're telling them they should do it. I think that's ingrained a little bit in our education. But certainly something with with the people who are used to using phones and used to using one-click shopping, there's no reason in the world why uh, the newest generations of doctors shouldn't be familiar, comfortable, and um, uh, willing to use this type of thing.
0: Exactly. and And along with that, or... Mindset that you mentioned, though. I also hear from physicians how frustrated they are about trying to change lifestyle behaviors, which we all know are the biggest medical challenges right now. And why we can't get from that frustration to... Realizing that we need to adapt slightly new technologies, tweak some of what we're doing based on human psychology is is surprising to me. But, yeah.
2: This is a big, broad topic, so I know we're, we're not going to have time to really dig into this, but um, because of your unique experience, I really wanted to touch on this. We talked about this a little bit before we were recording, but this is... Most people have heard the replication and reproducibility crisis, and this is across all sciences. But uh, there's been a particular focus, at least in the media, on psychology. And I know I made that joke earlier about undergraduate cohorts and free pizzas, but um, we all know a lot of studies are based off of that demographic, right? And there has been, you know, research written about that and criticism, and then explanations, but. In my opinion, and, and this includes our last episode with um, the statistician David Spiegelhalter, I think that this is a much more complex issue, and I don't think it's been h- handled very fairly in the media, because I think the work you're doing is very important. It's very important for all fields, but especially for medicine. And I think it's important that people have you know, a better perspective on what this so-called crisis is and what the issues are. First of all, just give us an idea where this came from very quickly, but also tell us about the consensus study, and this came from um, a committee that you were on with, I think, about 15 other researchers, scientists, engineers through the National Academies of Science. Um, you know, just tell us, first of all, what this crisis is and then your involvement there with this, with this uh, panel.
0: I, th- I think most of your listeners probably have heard that there is some concern about replicability of our scientific knowledge. And the panel arose because Congress asked the National Science Foundation to do a study on the extent to which replication in science is a problem. And so National Science Foundation asked the National Academies of of Science, Engineering and Medicine to form a panel and I got to sit on it, which was a wonderful experience to sit with, as you say, 14 other scientists um, from all fields, including two specifically from medicine, although several, uh, there there were, medicine was well represented with other folks as well. Um, (laughs) And we talked for about a year on exactly how much of a problem this is and what to do about it, if it is a problem. We decided early on that crisis is not a good term for the challenges in science, that science is constantly... Improving itself we are seeing constant methodological statistical improvements if you remember back in the 1960s There was this whole challenge Um, Rosenthal had this Insight that experimenter expectancies Influenced the data that they Mm -hmm. collected and The response was not to say, oh, my God, all science is biased. It was to develop double-blind trials. So we have a way of controlling experimenter expectancies so that beliefs of the scientist can't influence the data they collect in quite the same way. And we're seeing this kind of progress constantly. So science is, is continually progressing. It always, there are always challenges to our understanding, our epistemology. Well, I think one of the most... So, so, so my first comment is, let's put this in historical perspective. My second is, one of the most useful, I think, insights that came from our panel is that there's a difference between reproducibility in science and replicability. Mm-hmm. Now, reproducibility is, can I take your data and find exactly the same thing that you did? And that's critical.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We need to be able to reproduce data that's already been collected using the tools that you used. And we're not there yet. That's a challenge. We have to figure out how to be more transparent so that we can reproduce clearly what other people have done. Replicability is a slightly different question. Replicability is, can I take your question and study it again in my sample with my techniques and get the same result? And you're not always going to get 100% replicability, and you probably shouldn't. Because when I take your question. I'm going to tweak it in slightly different ways. I'm going to look at it in different samples. I'm going to use slightly different measures. I'm going to study people for slightly different amounts of time. And we want scientists to make those shifts so that we can figure out the robustness and the validity of a basic phenomenon because that's how we innovate and learn in science. So You want a certain amount of non-replicability in order for science to move forward. You want no (laughs) non-reproducibility. You want that to be clear each time. You look at a piece of data, you want to see the same thing.
2: And to look under the hood. I mean, see the methods and means and understand what the original hypothesis was. Yeah, what was
0: done. Yep. And that requires a great deal of transparency. And we don't have that level of transparency just yet. So part of our report was making recommendations on how to get to that level of transparency. And part of the report was explaining why we don't want complete reproduce sorry why do, why we don't want complete replicability because we want to innovate in science and test whether things hold under new conditions and so those are slightly different questions and I think they get um, confused in the public
2: discourse I think so too and it was actually an interesting um, paper to read. It's, it's free online. I'll put a link up on our website if anybody wants to take a look at it. But um, I actually learned a lot reading it. Um, and it must have been an interesting experience being a part of that, Wendy.
0: I, I learned so much. I actually was. I was in Paris for most of the meetings, and I flew back specifically for them. It was so fascinating. Okay. You never as a scientist, get it such an opportunity to catch up on what's happening across all fields. Yeah. It, it was such an opportunity. I'm, I'm
1: so grateful for it.
2: Yeah. It's something there should be more of. Well, Wendy, we're, uh, we're here at the end of the hour. Keith, did you have anything else?
1: Um, not unfortunately that I can, um, that Doing I can minutes fit into <laughs> this amount of time. You, you're definitely going to have to come back on. Um, yeah. uh, because, uh, um, uh, the whole concept of habit and how it works in terms of, of medical education, and whether that's a good or a bad thing, I think that that's a whole oh, yeah, that uh, to huge know. topic of conversation that we could take another hour on. Um,
0: well, can I say that um, I hope that people will read my book. I, I spent a lot of time trying to make it very accessible and practical, so take the science, and explain how people can use it. It's good habits, bad habits. And I'd love to answer anybody's questions or follow up with um, ideas, comments on this topic. As I said, I'm actively involved in research on it, and it continues. The field is just expanding wonderfully at this point.
2: Well, with that said, Wendy, tell uh, everybody how they can find your book, where they can learn more about you and get in touch with you?
0: Um, Well, I'm at the University of Southern California. I spend my summer still in Paris at INSEAD Business School. I'm very fortunate. (laughs) Um, My book, you can buy on Amazon. It's published by FSG, which is Macmillan. Um, If you just type in good habits, bad habits, you'll find it. We're, We're at a point where everyone's interested in habit I think but not everyone has access to the habit science so I just warn your readers because they are scientists trained in the medical field themselves <laughs> to be aware of the credentials of the people they're reading whose, whose work they're reading mm-hmm. it's easy at this point to sort of to get confused
2: well Wendy as Keith said I think we're going to have to have you come back on and maybe we can see how we both did with uh, with that meditation <laughs>
0: that's right <laughs> it's a competition now
2: yeah well, I, well, if we could both win that would be great but uh, oh, wouldn't it as long as one of us did but Wendy thanks so much for joining us that was a lot of fun I had so much more to talk oh. about but I think we got a good hour in uh,
0: thank you so much for inviting me
2: <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.